My name is Tom Johnson, and have you ever, maybe you've seen my blog at ratherbewriting.com. I'm just curious, how many people are familiar with my blog? How many people? Okay, so a lot of people are, are aware of a little bit who I am. I work for a nonprofit, and today I'm going to be talking about corporate or blogging, and we're going to talk kind of more specifically about company blogging. I did a Twitter poll the other day. <clears throat> um, I don't know how many are, of you are on Twitter, but I asked people, does your company have a blog? And I'm curious to know if the small percentages match up. So how many of you work for a company or if you're your own company that has a blog? Raise your hand. Oh, so quite a minority. Okay. So I only had about 15 people reply on Twitter, but 75% of them said that they, their company did have a blog. And it is a, it's definitely a growing trend. If you remember from the keynote this morning when David Pogue was talking, he said after each article he wrote, he got hundreds of comments. It's because newspapers, they have blog characteristics, right? You can comment below articles, which is not something you used to be able to do in the past, right? Which is, it's not necessarily what makes it, it wouldn't make it a blog, but it's very blog-like blog and Web 2.0-ish. So in many websites nowadays, you see this new link, blog, right? It's a new feature. It's becoming more and more standard. And there are lots of different types of blogs. It, not just your standard company blog. Uh, there's internal blogs that we never even see, right? A lot of times people have SharePoint. Their teams have, have blogs on those sites. We never even know. But, it, but it's a major factor in the way they do, they run their, their stuff. Uh, there's professional blogs where people just have a blog that, that's focused on a specific profession. There's personal blogs that are kind of like scrapbook blogs. There's group blogs that are written by teams of people, and there's individual blogs, and there's CEO blogs, and there's organization blogs. So when we talk about blogging, there are lots of different types of blogs, and what I'm going to try to touch on, we'll, we'll hopefully go through and touch upon all characteristics that would apply to every type of blog. So my main premise that I want to try to get across is that blogs are, are somewhat of a new medium in the company sphere, right? And all of you are technical writers, communicators of some variety. Well, blogs pose a new medium and a new format that probably should catch your attention because it's mostly, it mostly consists of the written word which is what you are, we are specialists in, right? We are writers. This is a written medium. What is our role when it comes to blogging? You know, who should blog? Your company announces a blog, should you be involved? Right? These are kind of questions that I was definitely feeling when I learned my organization had a blog. I thought, you know, do I just let marketing take over and, and do their job, or should I be involved in that? And I want to argue that, yes, you should. You should, for a variety of reasons. Now, in your typical company, you have a lot of different types of people, right? You have the CEO. You have your interaction designers. You have marketing, sales, security. I threw that in kind of for a joke. But uh, tech support. Um, there's lots of different people who could blog and who often do blog. And in fact, because blogs are often customer, well, most of them are customer-facing, a lot of times marketing and sales thinks, oh, that belongs to us. That's that's our domain. You know, we handle all the interactions with our customers. But it turns out um, 
if you, if you read a lot of stuff written by marketing and salespeople, it's not really what connects to people on the web. People on the web like to learn information. They don't want to read a recycled marketing brochure, which if you're a good marketing copywriter, right, you're not going to be recycling your brochures. But think just gener generally what tends to happen. Uh, if you're the CEO, you may be poised to uh, write about all kinds of cool strategic decisions that your company is making. You may, you may have the, oh, the, the insight into everything that's going on. You, you might think, oh, the CEO would be the perfect blogger for our company. But most CEOs are CEOs. They're not writers. Right? They, they're not really gifted with expression. And a lot of times when they're used to succeeding, so if they start blogging, it's something uncomfortable. It's not something they're really good at. Um, they're also in a highly visible spot. Right? They, start to, they start to write something, people scrutinize it. And so they tend to stand back a little bit, be a little more general, uh, not try to get into really specific, interesting stuff uh, because, of course, it could all come back at, at their face. <clears throat> Tech support, they're, they're closely involved in all the issues that are going on, but, but again, they're usually not writers. The only really role here is the technical writer who is a person who is who's qualified. And not just because of literary skill, although I think many technical writers are, they have this kind of suppressed literary talent. Many people wanted to be novelists or they have a creative writing background. I have a creative writing background. And uh, so, so, you know, the, the talent is there, but also because technical writers, they focus on information. Um, they're not really, they're not really uh, poisoned by hype and that kind of writing. Um, you have direct access to projects that are going on. Right? You're working with project managers, whatever, whatever company you are, you're working with the people who have the, the interesting information. So you have direct access to subject matter experts who, who you, can, you can pull for information, and you're used to getting information from people. There's a sort of reporter element in, in the technical writer that makes you perfectly suited to gathering information and crafting content. Um, you know, I also think that it adds a little fun in the job. Um, a lot of times you can spend all your day writing or doing something somewhat mundane. And having a few, a few hours every now and then to express something a little more creative can really liven up your job. Right? So, so there's many reasons why I think the technical writer is well suited um, to, to the role. And, and, and so you may be wondering, well, should I should I be that person and pursue that? And I say, yes. I was talking to someone right before uh, I started, and he wanted to know kind of what the value is that he can pitch to his employer about why they should have a blog. And this is a really common, a common uh, concern a lot of people have. A lot of times your company is thinking about a blog, not really sure about the value of it. You're kind of reactionary to this Web 2.0 stuff. You know you should do something, but why? What's the purpose? What's the bottom line behind it? My, my answer is that it's search engine visibility. I think when I work with people to do blog designs on the side, uh, it's always about search results. They always want to know how they can climb up in Google. Because that first position, when, when you search for something, that is, what, that is worth a lot in real estate sort of, a real estate paradigm. That is what is the most valuable property. Right, is be number one on the first page of Google. 
you will sell a product. So this is a, this is a sample search result. You probably can't see it, but my wife wrote this post on man laundry, poking fun at my inability to do laundry in a normal way, which, you know, anyway, but we won't go there. So she wrote this post about, about uh, how men do laundry, right? Well, it caught the attention of this AP writer who was writing something about um, mothers who are mad at dads. <laughs> and, and she loved the post and ended up like contacting her to write an article about it and also interviewed me and wanted to get pictures of me trying to help out the house, to help out around the house. So it all happened because her search, her post had turned up in the search results. So some really interesting things start happening when you, when you get on the first page of Google, that you get a, an increased visibility that leads to sales of your products, that leads to interest and, and all kinds of other, other benefits. Now, in order to, to get good search engine visibility, you can't just write in a normal way. You want to write search engine optimized posts. And all that means is figuring out what people are searching for, what keywords are searching for, and then putting those keywords into the title of your post and the first paragraph so that when people search for those terms, your blog comes up or your, your site comes up. So this requires a different mindset. And you may think, well, you know, this is going to hurt my style. It's going to cramp my prose. But um, you have to remember, and this is a point I'll get into later, your posts only live on the home page until they cycle out of it. And then they, they land in the recesses of, of no man's land only to be found by people who hit you with searches. So it's really essential that you just at least understand <coughs> how, to, how to make it so it comes up in the search results. So the very first word, the very first words are the highest value. This is how in Google's algorithm, this is one of the key components, right? There are many factors that determine what comes up on the first page, but those first few words of your title and the first few words of your very first paragraph are hugely significant. So once you find out what words you want to use, um, you have to craft your post in a way that integrates them there. Now, if you don't care about it, you're just writing a post to write a post, that's fine. But if you really are trying to get high in search engines, this is what you do. However, Google is, is not dumb, right? They are, they are a number one search engine machine for a reason. They know that many people try to game their systems. You can't just repeat the word man laundry a hundred times and, and trick Google. It's smarter than that. So the way Google operates is that it trusts other people's opinions about your site more than your site itself. So if I linked to your blog and I used the word, you know, this site has the best laptop deals or something, and I have best laptop as a hyperlink pointing to your site, Google sees that and says, oh, that site must really be about the best laptops. I'm going to increase its, its rank in the search engines. So these are called backlinks, these, these links pointing back to your site. And they're much more valuable in search engine karma than, than anything else. And uh, I, was, I was doing a website for a guy a while back. I do kind of WordPress freelance design on the side when I need money or something. And this guy has this Bellingham real estate site, and he really wanted to increase the search results. He was down at the he was down at the bottom. He managed to bring him up to the to the to the second from the top. Um, 
through his blog and his efforts. But I went to his blog and I was reading the posts and none of them were targeted with Bellingham Real Estate. They were all stuff that, I mean, if you wanted to have a picnic on a beach, I mean, that, that's the kind of title that it would, would have. It was semi-related to the area, but it wasn't really focused on that. So if, if the search engine visibility is your goal and it is kind of the thing that, mo that speaks most to the bottom dollar about the purpose of, of blogs for companies, um, then you have to write with this in mind. All right, by the way, uh, if you have questions, just raise your hand. I'd be happy to address them at any point. You don't have to wait till the end. I like to know what people are thinking and address any issues as we go. We have quite a while, so. Any issues about search engine optimization visibility? Yeah. How effective are plugins for SEO? So, this gets into the question of platforms, and this is one reason why WordPress is really popular. There is a plugin called All-in-One SEO. Actually, there are probably dozens of plugins, but this is the most popular. Search engine optimization is what SEO stands for. So this plugin is called All-in-One SEO. And what it allows you to do is actually quite cool. So let's say, that, let's come back to the best laptops. You're a laptop company, you sell laptops, you, you know that people search for best laptops and, and you, wanna, you wanna attract those searches. But you know that if you write a post titled best laptops, it's gonna look corny, it's gonna look stupid, right? You're not, it's not literary, it's generic, it's, it's cheesy. Well, this all-in-one SEO plugin allows you to create a title that Google sees and a title that your readers see. So if you search for best laptops, Google sees your post and says, oh, it says best laptops. I'll serve that up. But when, you, when the reader clicks on it, it actually says, you know, uh, whatever cute, clever, clever title you actually use. That's one of the most popular search engine optimization plugins. Um, and I don't use this every time. To be honest, it's kind of arduous to try to think about this a lot. Um, what search keywords to use. I mean, there's services that, that will try to monitor this. Um, Word Tracker, I think Monitor is actually one, where you can find out what are the keywords people are using. But that little research is something that is not really intuitive to most, most of us with writing backgrounds. We're used to, to, to doing uh, more literary writing or, or more information-based writing without worrying about the keywords that, that users are searching for. But the, coming back to the Bellingham guy, the reason I brought him up is that I told him, look, in addition to your posts, you need people linking to your site with the words Bellingham Real Estate. And he said, well, how the heck am I going to do that? And I said, uh, well, you can try to get clever, but basically there's one rule that determines whether people link to you, and that is having good content, which brings me to my next point. The key elements of blogs, really having story, transparency, honesty, and voice. This is what invites people to link back to you. It's what kind of defines good content. How many of you recently saw the Susan Boyle video from Britain's Got, Ta Britain's Got Talent, right? So if you haven't, in sum, she, is, um, she was this kind of middle-aged woman, ugly, or well, not ugly, but <laughs> homely, with, from a small, no-name town, kind of a no-hoper. She walked up on the stage, it's similar to American Idol. Walked up on the stage, and nobody thought she was going to do anything worthwhile. And the judges were like, yeah, what are you going to say? You know, well, why do you think you haven't had success? You know, obviously, 
leading questions. And then she blew them away with, with uh, uh, thank you, <laughs> I dreamed a dream. Um, so from a Les Mis song. Blew them away. You could see the reactions of the judges change. Their jaws drop, their eyes open, the audience totally started cheering. And you could see this woman taking on this enthusiasm and energy and just, you know, confidently going forward. The video went viral, had millions of hits. And uh, I was, why, why exactly did it go viral? There was, an, there was an, an analysis about why. And it said because it told a whole story. It had a whole story about this woman and, and the change in mind of the, the, the mental change that people made based on what she did and what happened, um, her background and things like that. But it's the story that makes blog content appealing. It makes anything appealing, really. If you think about the last good book you read, I'm sure it probably had some elements of story in them. And when I say story, I don't really mean, I don't mean just your typical story uh, breakdown with a protagonist and rising action and a climax and denouement and stuff. But all things can be kind of pitched in terms of a story where you have, you have an idea or you have some, some purpose, but there's conflict that prevents you from achieving that purpose. You know, the, the, the introduction of conflict is really what kind of drives that story along. So if you, if you write from a story-driven point of view, your posts are really going to have a lot more appeal to people. Uh, there's a blog that I like called powar.com by John Hewitt, and he recently, well, quite a few months ago actually, he started a series of stories from his career as a technical writer. He would talk about uh, trying to get a job and the first job he had and what they asked for him and what happened and how he didn't have a clue and, and the, the ideas that he had and the breakthrough and things like that. They were really mesmerizing posts. I hadn't really paid attention to his site that much until he started writing these story-driven posts. And I linked back to him abundantly because of it, which then gave him more search engine visibility. Uh, now, not all posts really lend themselves to stories, right? It's sometimes really hard to find the story and to learn to see the story. So there are other elements that are critical, transparency and, and voice. Um, the transparency one is the hardest. Uh, for, for, for whatever company you work with, this is certainly going to be an issue because all the cool stories are probably things you can't write about. For example, <laughs> Imagine you are working for Apple uh, during the time when they were working on the iPhone and you were looking for ideas for your company blog. Well, that would be a pretty cool story, wouldn't it? What they're trying to do, the AT&T thing. I'm sure you wouldn't be able to write about it. Um, and this is, this, is, this is probably the most difficult part of having a blog at a company. And it's why most people like the independent voice more because you're un, unfettered, you can do whatever you want, write about whatever you want uh, without having to go through any kind of editorial process. But if you write for a company, you're certainly going to run into the issue of transparency. And I, I mean, I don't have a magic solution to get around this. I'm just trying to let you know. You can focus on things that are safe, uh, things that you've already been done. And of course, this varies from company to company. Um, you can focus on things that, that uh, people should already know about, but try to tell the stories behind the scenes that maybe people didn't know or things behind it. For example, Gmail uh, has quite a fascinating story behind it. I never knew about it until I listened to, it was actually a podcast by one of the product managers over there. It turns out that it was, it was not something they, 
they uh, had set out to do. No, sorry, AdSense was not something they had set out, set out to uh, to do in order to to couple it with Gmail. Um, and I can't remember all the details; it just kind of came to me at the moment. But basically, if you if you find something that does have story, even if it's even if it's not a controversial issue, it can still ignite your audience. Any questions about about that so far? Okay. Now, this is a picture of uh, Erasmus, a 16th century philosopher, Dutch guy. He says, the desire to write grows with writing. And this used to hang in where I went to college in the writing department. And it's a quote that has stuck with me. Because this leads to, to another major challenge that everybody always wants to know about blogging is, is you know, gosh, I don't have time to blog. I, I don't know what to blog about. And um, in fact, somebody emailed me a while ago and said, I, I just don't understand how you have the time to blog as much as I think you do. <laughs> and kind of kind of made me a little incensed because I think that the more you write, the easier it gets to write. The way your brain, our brains work is that as soon as you, we start writing, we get in this writing rhythm and ideas come to us because we're teaching our brain to look for them. It's easier to write every day than it is to write once a week. I don't mean post every day. I just mean write because you establish your, your writing rhythm and you get in that writing groove and everything you see around you, you suddenly look at from the writer's point of view. Whereas if you do it once every two weeks, um, you're just not in that mode. In fact, the longer you go without blogging, the harder it is to write that next post. Um, same with Twitter. Many of you are probably doing Twitter for the first time. And, and as soon as you start posting those little tweets across, you start to look at the world in terms of tweeting. And everything's like an, a tweet idea that you can send across. And it's the same with writing. And, and, and um, that's why it's important to always uh, try to find a rhythm where you write every day. I, I take the bus to work, and there's an hour on the way and an hour on the way back where I have complete freedom to work on my laptop. And it's perfect. I can, I can write a lot in that time. Don't always you know, publish that, but it's, it's a space to write. So uh, generating content is, is, is a major um, component of blogging. You have to publish regular content. But this poses an even bigger challenge right, in the company environment. Because you already have six projects. You have uh, meetings. You don't have time to blog. So if you're trying to, if you're the manager of your blog, or if you're trying to contribute to your blog, how do you find the time to actually do it, right? And I think there, there is no magic for finding the time to do it, only that you should be aware that you probably won't be given any special time to do it. <laughs> um, but if you have an environment that is supportive, if you have a boss or a manager, or if you are the manager, or your CEO is supportive of your endeavor, makes a huge difference. One of the reasons I like blogging so much is because at home, my wife is also a blogger. So we support each other. I love reading what she writes. She sometimes reads what I write. <laughs> <laughs> but we both respect the fact that when you're on the computer and you're writing something, it's not a waste of time. It's not an, an, a moment where you say, can you get off the computer and actually do something with your life? You know, it's... it's <laughs> It's, it's uh, something perceived as valuable. 
So having that supportive environment can really help you find the time to do it. Any questions so far? Okay. So now I want to talk about how your audience actually consumes information because we, we oftentimes have this idea that people are reading, reading blog posts uh, on their computer, sitting with good posture and looking and totally focused, you know, reading on your original site. And that's, that's not really how it happens at all. Um, most people read blogs through feed readers or through Twitter. Some people like to receive them by email. And a lot of times I'll read blog posts on this little uh, Sprint mobile device um, and, and read it. I'll read it while I'm waiting in line or in an elevator. And it makes, it makes a, a different experience than when you're reading it at the computer. How many of you use feed readers? I'm just curious. Raise your hand. So just uh, about the same number of people who actually have company blogs. Um, my wife, before she got into blogging, she would bookmark a bunch of sites and visit them individually. And I kept telling her, that's not the way that you keep up with 30 different sites. Right? And finally, she went on to Google Reader, and it was this tremendous breakthrough for her. She was like, wow. And she started writing about how cool Google Reader was because she could keep track of so many more blogs. Um, so this is the a typical view of, of Google Reader, which is probably one of the most popular feed readers. And what do you notice about that? What do you think is going to be the most important factor as to whether somebody actually reads your post or not? The, the title. Yeah, that's all they're seeing. You can see the source, right? So the name of it is important. But the title is what people read. And you know, as more and more people blog, and as you follow more and more people, it gets to be more and more of this giant mesh of information that just flows. and, and and you drink from the fire hose, right? You stick your head in and you say, is there anything interesting in this stream of information? And you glance at a title and say, yeah, I'll check that out. So learning to craft a catchy title is a key element of blogging. And actually, there's a great site that has good examples. If you go to copyblogger.com, he's got some good examples. But you want your title to be descriptive of what you're writing about, as well as catchy and have the search engine optimized words in there if you can fit them in. So think a lot about your title. Now there's also a lot of people who, it always amuses me when I run into people who are very anti-Twitter, but they blog a lot. And I, I, I think there's a growing trend of people who have given up on RSS because it just doesn't work for them. And they prefer Twitter because it just seems to work better. Uh, it seems less of a commitment to try to read everything. You can set up your blog to automatically shoot your latest posts across Twitter through a site called Twitter Feed. I'm sure there are probably other sites, but it's one I use. So every time you pu publish something on your blog, people on Twitter also get it. And you reach the people who have decided to just use Twitter and not RSS. But then there's another group of people who don't use Twitter and they don't use RSS either because they just don't want to do that. They prefer email, and maybe they have you filtered into a special box where they'll read when they have time. So you want to give people the option of subscribing to your blog by email. If you have audio content, you don't want to force people to download things every time. You want to give them the iTunes option because anybody with an iPod knows it's a lot easier. You plug the thing in, and it downloads everything automatically. My point here is that 
Your audience consumes information in a variety of ways. And you want to try to provide that as much as possible. So an easy way to do that is through a site called FeedBurner. They, they will give you a, an email link to subscribe to your content, um, an RSS link that you can use. If your site ever changes, no problem. You won't lose your 1,000 followers. You just change some information in FeedBurner, and you're good to go. Um, so as long as you provide people with these options and, and understand that they read your stuff in moments of transition or in, in idle moments, um, then, then it will affect the way you write. Any questions? What was the name of that site? Twitter feed is the name of the site that will syndicate your, your Twitter posts. Sorry, that will syndicate your blog posts across Twitter. That's what you're asking? Oh, FeedBurner. Yeah. Actually, this is a super important site. Most people, when I go to their site, if they don't have FeedBurner, I don't know what they're doing. Because, uh, for example, I had a friend who had a great blog. And he had the RSS feed for a while. He had the blog. It's, a, it's shortcomings.com. Great podcast site about, uh, he writes about humor, or he, he has shows about humor. Well, he decided to change sites one day and realized that his RSS feed would have to change. Well, he just lost two, 300, or 600 people because uh, unless they're going, to update, they're going to update all their feed readers with his new RSS feed, they're not going to follow him. FeedBurner kind of routes your feed, your original feed, through them, and then you can choose a different feed that remains static regardless of the original source that's coming through it. So you can change sites, and you just update your original feed, but your FeedBurner feed stays the same. And the added benefit of FeedBurner, really, and this, is, this feeds into something else. You can see how many people are subscribed to your site. And this is, this is a good way to track success. If people are subscribing to your site, you must be doing something right. right? If, if people are not, then they must not be compelled enough by your content to actually want to subscribe to it. So as far as I know, FeedBurner is one of the few sites that allows you to actually track the number of RSS subscribers. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody fully understands Google's algorithm. I've heard people say you want to have at least a 300 to 600 word post. The more, the more content you have in the post, the more opportunities you have to inject your keywords. But I think after 500 words, it's really irrelevant. In fact, uh, you can have highly targeted posts with one or two paragraphs as long as you have the right keywords. The whole backlinking thing is, is really important. I was at a WordCamp uh, event, which is a, like a WordPress enthusiast conf unconference type conference. And I was, I was writing up descriptions of things. And I posted four descriptions of events. One of, the, one of my posts was linked to by another person. Well, when I did a search for WordCamp, WordCamp Utah, the post that was linked to was the only post that appeared in the search results. So the backlinks are more important than the keywords. But keywords are great. Make it as long as, as you want. And, and try to be graceful about inserting that. Now, this is, this is the scary part about blogging. I was once, I was once listening to something Michael Arrington said. He's the TechCrunch guy, which has, uh, it's mind-blowing how many people subscribe to TechCrunch. He has something like 2 million. And he said, 
he, he was asked, is blogging a good business model? And he says it's a terrible business model. Because uh, if you want to really have a successful business, you, you set up something that has residual income. You just get money without having to do anything. But, but with blogging, he said it's like reaching in and grabbing a handful of sand and bringing it up. If the sand runs out, you've got to reach in and grab more sand and bring it up. So right now I have 741 or two posts on my site. But most people who go there will only see the last 10 posts and 731 previous ones are gone. They, they, they exist if you search for them, but they just kind of disappear into, never, into nothing. Um, so how do you make all this content that you've written for years still fresh and alive and invisible and vibrant and part of your site? This is one of the huge frustrations of blogging. <clears throat> uh, it's like your stuff is camouflaged and people can't see it. And there are different ways that people try to bring out the archives, bring out the past. One way is they have the concept of tags. So if you tag a post with a word, that tag becomes a link so that if a user clicks it, for example, if you, if you tag a post with STC, all the other posts tagged with that same word will come up in an aggregated way. Right? And categories works the same way. Most sites have these categories you can choose. And all the category does is basically show you all the other posts that have been filed in that category. So categories and tags are standard, but to be honest, I don't think that many people really use them. There's a couple other techniques that you can use. One is called related posts. So at the bottom of a post, there will be five or six related posts. And the only way you do this um, practically is through a, a plugin. And with WordPress, if you search for a related post plugin, you can just easily add this to your, to your site. It will give you the functionality. So this is kind of helpful because you think people who find your site usually find it through searches. They pull up a post because they're looking for information about that topic. And at the bottom, they see other related posts that you've written about that same topic. And it encourages them to drill into it. Uh, there's also a strategy of making your, your top 10 posts on your sidebar. So your, the, peop, the, the kind of content most people search for uh, can appear on the right. And for example, I believe Guy Kawasaki's site has a great example of this. Uh, his, his number one post was something like the 80-20-10 PowerPoint rule. I went to his site and read it and thought, wow, that's a great post. The problem with having your most popular posts aggregated in your sidebar, though, is that sometimes your most popular post is not what you want to showcase. For example, on my site, in, in a somewhat embarrassing way, one of the most popular posts is a post I wrote about a grasshopper, a picture I took of a giant lubber grasshopper. And somehow it is like tons of people find me through this grasshopper post. And I don't really want to be known for the having, oh, you're the guy with that grasshopper image. No. So, so that's somewhat of a backfire. But um, in general, it, it it teaches you not only, well, it not only helps readers find your most interesting content, but it teaches you what people are really finding on your site. You may have Google Analytics hooked up where you see that you get 700 hits a day. Well, what are people finding? When I review that, I find that people are actually finding a lot of things that I didn't think they were finding. That post I wrote four months ago about WordPress image galleries is one of my top hits, but I didn't really want to be known for a WordPress image gallery writer. So the popular post is kind of an interesting technique. I do recommend it. You could also pick your own popular posts 
and try to pass those off. But what you like may not be what people actually read. So, at any rate, you do have this tremendous backlog of posts that you have to somehow make sense of. And um, besides tags, categories, related posts, most popular posts, you can have random posts. The number one technique that you want to do to make sure that all these 700 posts you write just don't disappear into oblivion is to search engine optimize them because that is where the majority of your visitors come to your site. So if you, if you think, look, I may have written an awesome post. If you just remember that in two weeks' time when it's no longer on your homepage and it's in your archives, that nobody's going to find it because you wanted to use, um, that you, because you didn't think about search engine optimization when you wrote it, it'll take some of the wind out of your sails about, about the new post that you wrote. So keep that in mind. Use SEO to make them findable. Uh, about, about three or four months ago, my wife was, uh, she, she has a really successful blog, whataboutmomblog.com. And she was really, she was really feeling, feeling on edge about the comments that she received. If she didn't get a post with comments, she just, it, it kind of put her in a bad mood or made her feel like her blog was not successful. So she decided to turn them off, make it so people couldn't comment. She said, I'd rather not know. You know, I'm just going to write for myself, and whether people like it or not, who cares? This lasted not even 24 hours before she turned them on. She made it such a big deal about having me go in and turn them off, and I was like, you really want to do that? You don't really want to do that. And uh, so she turned them back on. And uh, the lesson to be learned here is that comments are an extreme personal high about blogging. That is one of the most fundamental reasons why we blog. We may think that, oh, we're writing because we have an idea we want to express and sort out our thoughts. But if you've ever tried writing without an audience, I think it is almost impossible. You have the idea, we have the idea that somebody somewhere, some faceless person is reading what we write and is finding meaning in it in some way. And that is one of the, one of the highs of blogging. It's what, what keeps people going. When you get comments, it is like getting a rush, even if they're comments that hate what you wrote. It still means that you're making some kind of connection with other people. It is what, um, it, you really want to have comments. Now, a lot of people, though, in the company setting, get really concerned about this because they know that some people hate their products and they certainly don't want that kind of com complainy, whiny, hateful voice appearing on their sites. So they will turn comments off or they will sanitize them by requiring approval. And I think this is the wrong way to go. Definitely, 100%. I, people who, who want to filter comments, I tell them, don't do that. First of all, the number of negative comments you get is like one out of every 500. And if it's the reverse, if, it, if you really get 500 negative comments to one positive comment, then you should know that and you should change something. <laughs> right? Your product should, should it should be like a wake-up call to, to whatever product you have that people hate. So it can be this, this barometer of finding out what people really think. Right? You don't want to filter that or sanitize that. It also engenders a bit of distrust if you require people to, if you require approval for comments. It says to the reader, look, I don't trust you. And all these other comments, I made sure there were good ones that I liked before they appeared on my site. And so it devalues the sort of authenticity, the genuineness that people come to for blogs. 
Now, there's a lot in my little graphic here. Um, I would say at least half the comments, well, at least a quarter of the comments that usually sneak through are, are spam comments. And this can be a real problem. And this is actually why a lot of people may require approval, because they don't have very good spam filters. And so they don't want a bunch of junk appearing there, so they actually just filter them out. Um, one of the cool things about WordPress is that they have a, and you can use this on other sites as well, but they have a spam blocker called a Kismet. So every time you mark a comment as a spam comment, um, some kind of information is sent to this Akismet database that blacklists that IP address or commenter or something. So it, it tries to work collectively to find out what the spam comments are. And it works decent. If you turn it off, you suddenly see, whoa, you know, turn that back on. But um, definitely do some kind of spam blocking mechanism. It is easier to delete the spam and delete, um, I mean, if you get an obscene comment, sure, you want to delete that if you don't want something uh, somebody swearing all over your, your site. Uh, but it's a lot easier, easier to delete that stuff than to suddenly go through and tediously approve each one. So, um, and, and a lot of people don't get comments at all, really. I, I've, sometimes I, I spend a long time on a post and get no comments. Um, and that doesn't really mean that nobody's reading it. It just means that a lot of times people don't have anything to say. <laughs> or you weren't controversial enough to evoke them to take action to, to comment. Uh, it, it doesn't, you shouldn't take that as, as a downer. Um, there are a couple other plugins I really recommend. And we're going to get into platforms later. I don't mean to be, always be coming back to WordPress. But one of the problems with comments is that, let's say you have 10 comments and you finally get the time to respond to them. Well, you want to respond to them in a threaded way. You want to, like the very first comment, you want your reply to appear after that first comment, right? You don't want your reply to appear at the end, and then people have to try to figure out what you were responding to and how that order order goes about. So there's a great plugin called Threaded Comments. Threaded Comments plug for WordPress. Allows you to hit reply right after the comment that you want to reply to. And, and you should reply to comments. I'm terrible at this, but... Um, I know I, I, in fact, the Poware guide once did a little contest. I mean, he was, I don't know, comparing blogs, and I, I, mine was one of them, but I got dinged because I didn't respond enough to comments. And uh, anyway, if you respond to comments, it makes people who read your blog feel like, yeah, you're listening. This is valuable. And you're not just, just dismissing them. Um, yeah, question. POWAR, P-O-E-W-A-R. I think it stands for Poetry Writing and Resource. Yeah. The other comment plugin that I really like is one called Subscribe to Comments. A lot of people don't like this, but what this allows you to do is, is if you comment on a, on a site and then you leave that site, when somebody follows up with a response to your comment, you're notified by email. So in my world, this is how, or in my mind, I want to be notified because I'm not going to return to the site and try to check back to see if somebody commented. It could take weeks or hours or whatever. So subscribe to comments, threaded comments, akismet. These are all good tools to use when, when doing, um, working with comments. Yeah. Yeah, akismet. How do you spell it? A-K-I-S-M-E-T. I've forgotten what it means. So, 
I'll have to refresh my memory. I would like to talk briefly about the results of blogging. We talked initially about search engine visibility. I think this, this is one of the biggest benefits of having a blog is visibility. Um, for example, uh, from a personal example, last year I, okay, two years ago I, I gave no presentations. Last year I gave like several. This year I'm scheduled to give 12. There's, there's like this giant visibility track that is coming directly through my blog that I've experienced. If you're selling a product, you will get tremendous visibility. I, I said that I, I did some WordPress consulting on the side. Well, uh, it really started to take off like six months ago, and I couldn't quite figure out why. But it was because I had been writing about WordPress. I had been mentioning how to seamless, seamlessly integrate a, a non-WordPress site into a WordPress site. And it was getting tons of hits, and it was getting all kinds of people asking me to do these sites for them, which turned out to be really kind of painful in some ways. <laughs> I'm not a web designer, but but uh, can pass by a decent job sometimes. So if you're selling a product, if you're trying to get visibility for a product, uh, the blog is a great mechanism because it allows you to generate tons of content. You you have an unlimited opportunity to write post after post about what your users are searching for, the problems, the issues they're coming up with, and it allows you to put that right in front of them as they're Googling it. Um, There's lots of other benefits of blogging, too. I mean, aside from, from visibility, I think that people, customers, who, who read, who see what's going on, are affected by the blog. I, I've heard some people say that, that it encourages more loyalty to the brand. If you, if, let's, there's actually a yogurt blog. I can't remember what it's by, but they talk about cows and how they, their milking process. It's actually a really successful blog. But if you start to read that blog, you have more of that brand awareness in your mind. You have more of this idea of, oh yeah, that's my product. Uh, one of the blogs I really like is Visual Lounge, the Camtasia Studio products. And uh, it's great just to feel a behind the scenes sort of connection. And that connection is probably most valuable, right, in, in the corporate setting because you're, you're connecting with your users. If, yes, question in the back. So your question is, in this litigious society, right, how do you avoid being sued about something that you write on your blog, and how do you avoid that controversy? Well, if you have a pharmaceutical company, let's say you work for a pharmaceutical company and you're writing about the blog, I would, I would guess that you'd have to have some kind of lawyer integrated into your review process. When what you say has legal ramifications, and yeah, you probably want to get a lawyer there. A lot of times, it's not an issue because, um, well, see, I work for a nonprofit that it's not really, the danger is not being sued. The danger is letting people know about something that we didn't really want them to know about at that time. So. Well, and the, the follow-up to that is it's not only being sued, it's uh, considered 
Yeah. So you want to you want to avoid writing something that gets you fired because you didn't you, you should have known better that you shouldn't have written about it or something but you knew it was a good story and but then it puts you in a difficult position right and you know I think you just you just have to know your products well and what you can and cannot say we had a blender where where somebody published a, a post about about a new project and this news site misinterpreted it broadcasted on all kinds of like radio people were going to the site they were confused the person who wrote it felt like a shoe and and it was just kind of an embarrassing moment that we let pass and I think that this is bound to happen the, the results were that uh, the people who managed at the senior level then suddenly wanted wanted to put more review layers into into the blog which now has to go through like three different tiers it can be ex incredibly painful we have we have uh, uh, several layers of committees that have to ensure that it's appropriate because of those blunders. So I guess you'll learn as you go and reap the consequences of, of misjudgment. The disclaimer, yeah. yeah. The di you can put a disclaimer in your site. Since I'm not a lawyer, I don't know if that totally frees you up from anything, but, but it, it's a good practice. <laughs> so in UK law, the copyright doesn't mean it, or not the copyright, the, the disclaimer. So there's another aspect of blogging that is really fascinating. And I, I recently, my latest post is about this. Uh, branding is something that comes about because of your blog. You are what you write about. And, and as much as you may hate it, you are branded by the topics you consistently post about. So. When I ask people what brand they associate with me, and first of all, I hate the word brand. It sounds like a marketing strategy, which you know goes counter to the genuineness of blogs. But when I ask people, you know, what do you associate with me as an identity online? They say, oh, you're blogging, you're WordPress and podcasting. I'm like, ah, oh, but I'm so much more than that. I'm actually, I'm actually a technical writer. I do quick reference guides. You know, I, I do online help. I work with Flair. I'm like, no, you're WordPress and you're blogging and podcasting. So. This branding is something that comes about, and this can work for you, and it can work against you. Um, so, so you, in a cool way, you can construct your identity by deciding to, to do something, by deciding to have a focus on your blog. For example, on my blog, I wanted to have the, the latest trends in communication be the focus, and brand myself as that, right? And whatever you choose, uh, if you consistently write about that, people will begin to think that you know what you're saying. And, and they'll begin to perceive you as an expert. And then you, can invite, you get invited to speak at things like this. But uh, there's a lot of examples where, where this happens. And, and it can be a positive thing. Um, if you're trying to, to promote your company as, as a certain branded expert, you just start writing posts about the sort of brand you want to portray. And it eventually happens. Um, I think the way it happens is, is the same way branding always happens. People. People read things, they see things, and they, they begin to form judgments. Whether, whether what they read and see is online or in a printed academic journal doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference. Yeah? So when you're talking about branding, how the users see you, I'm getting the impression that you have a company blog site, but you have your own personal one. Is that correct? Okay, so your question is, do I have a, oh, do I have a company blog site in addition to a personal one? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So my personal blog is I'd rather be writing.com. It's a prof it's like a professional blog. I try to have it on TechCom, but my organization has its own blog, tech.lds.org. It's like a technology glimpse into into what we're working on kind of blog. Um, so yeah, those are the two. And and you know my my brand has not been correlated between the two for probably some of the reasons that uh, the woman back there pointed out. So if I write something on my personal professional blog that maybe my company doesn't want to be associated with, then I certainly don't want to have that come back at me. So I don't want to uh, be branded as, as the same writer for both. Actually, there's a great writer who I really like, Penelope Trunk. She uses uh, pseudonyms, so that's not her real name. And she does this in part to protect people she's writing about or just to keep anonymity and prevent the branding. If she wanted to reinvent herself as a new person, she just changes the name and, and she could um, move forward. Karen. Okay, so your question is, how does having a pseudonym affect your authenticity and the relationship that you're trying to build with the reader? I, you know, for some reason in her in her situation it seems to work. She now you may just find her site and think Penelope, oh that's her name. You may not realize it's a pseudonym. There's another blog, a Monkey PI, <coughs> maybe you've heard of it. That uses a pseudonym, and I couldn't tell you who the original author is for that site. So and that's and I, I emailed him once and said, Who are you? <laughs> and he told me, he said it's it's no big deal, I'll tell you. And it wasn't very interesting. It was like somebody, some person I didn't know. Yeah? There's that waiter brand blog where the guy kept his anonymity so he got a post a little bit in the public was. But that ended for the ability to mm. be able to brand about his business. Yeah. So there's, what, there's another site that, that she mentions that's uh, another example of somebody who's, who's writing in anonymity. Would you say waiter writer? Well, Waiter rant. Okay. Actually, Penelope Trunk had a post recently that was really fascinating about anonymity. She, come to think of it, I'm not sure how it squares with her own anonymity, but she said, don't write in anonymity because when you write anonymously, you tend to think that people don't know what you're writing about, that you're writing in secret, right, and nobody knows you. But so, so for example, if you wanted to write about a colleague or how dumb your your CEO is, you know. As long as you keep it anonymous, you're safe. But actually, people find out, and and by being anonymous, you tend to take more liberties than you would be if you are writing under your real name, and you, you you're less responsible. Because obviously, you know, if you if you blog badly about a colleague, it's it's going to come back to you. So how does coming back to Karen's question in the back, how does having an anonymous name affect your relationship with your readers? I think it hurts your authenticity a bit. I think it doesn't work for you. I think it, it works against you. Um, but there are many examples of successful anonymous blocks. So, how much more time do we have? Um, it's about seven minutes before. Okay. So you got about five minutes for questions. Okay. Four thirty. Oh, four thirty. Good. Good. So, a lot of yes. Question. I'm not actually quite sure how to articulate my question. Um, I have been told that it might be a good idea for me to write an anonymous blog. Um, but I understood that people could find out your IP address and 
Okay, so the question is, she's been encouraged to write an anonymous blog, but wonders if people can discover her IP address and figure out her identity that way. Yeah, if you go to whatismyipaddress.org or com, you can find it, but that may only tell you the general location you're at. Really, if you start writing stories and interesting blog content, you can't do that anonymously well. Um, details are going, going to come out. For example, here's something that would be classically a bad move in the corporate company blog atmosphere. You pretend to be a customer. Let's, okay, let's make this. Let's say you're a customer of Acme Help Authoring Tool. You start a blog under a pseudonym and you write about how poor the tool is and all these bad experiences, but you really work for the competitor, right? Now, eventually somebody will learn what you're doing and it will blow up in your face and then you'll have a PR nightmare. So keep it authentic and be honest. Because I think somebody tweeted about this just today. Somebody said genuineness is, uh, is, is like the currency of, of the blogosphere or something. It's, people really value genuine, genuineness and honesty. Any other questions? So if your company now you have a personal blog and are there any So the question is, do, does my company know that I have a personal blog and does that pose any problems or, or conflicts? And I love this question. I was in, you know, okay, I have to tell you a brief story. I was in a, at the summit last year, I believe, and somebody was talking about blogging. And the whole, it was an academic, and the whole discussion swayed around, oh, if you blog, your, your employer may find it out and then you're in trouble because, um, they they could discover all this crazy stuff you're writing. And uh, in my experience, my blog has always worked for my benefit. I put it on my resume when I'm applying for a job, and it puts me heads above other candidates, especially the podcast. People love to see enthusiasm and passion and engagement in the field that you're in. Uh, does everybody in my company know that I have the blog? No, right? The legal department doesn't know. But um, <laughs> they don't care. In fact, they're not tech-savvy enough to really care. But my manager, of course, my manager is, is completely supportive. He, we actually have a Twitter sphere kind of at our, at our work, so everybody's on Twitter. And so everybody who follows me gets my latest posts across Twitter anyway. So it actually does more to build your reputation and credibility than you can imagine. And uh, it's definitely not something you ever want to hide. And this, is, this comes back to the anonymity factor. You don't want to, because you know you're public, you're going to be more responsible. You're not going to write something political, like a political rant and, or, or religious rant or something that's going to come back to you and, and uh, create a, a problem and a conflict. So it makes you more responsible as more people know about what you're doing. Yes, in the back? I was just going to say that I'm a hiring manager, and if you put a blog link on your resume, you should be subject to that you want to see it. Okay, so just for the <laughs> recording, so she's saying that uh, you, as a hiring manager, the hiring managers look at, at your links. They Google you. They, they find this out. And uh, we recently went through a hiring process where I am. 
I'm not a hiring manager, but I got to be part of the, the process of, of interviewing. The per one of the only one person actually had a blog, but he was by far the most interesting, or one of the most interesting candidates, and he he ended up getting the job. And you know, I, the more people I run into, um, I ask them, "Hey, do you have a blog?" It, it's almost like the new personal business card. It's 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 such an asset to your resume uh, if you're if you're job hunting. Um, it really lets people discover that you know a lot about things that maybe they wouldn't think otherwise. But again, that. That involves having a focus to your blog, and this is what I want to talk about now. Um, a lot of times when you start out, I mean, you spend all day writing technical documents. You may think, the last thing I want to do in my free time is write about technical communication. You know, I want to have a music blog, or I want to have a, a different type of blog that's an escape, and that's fine. That's totally fine, but figuring out your focus is, is something that is really kind of fascinating. Uh, I, there was a guy <clears throat> when I was first, actually when I was back in Florida, there was a guy who started to, I encouraged him to get into blogging. And because and, he, he wanted to, but I, I pushed him along. I said, you know, let's, get, let's do whatever you need to do to get set up. And he started out with two different blogs. He had his music blog and then he had his technical communication blog. And he tried to do like two different blogs at once. But that didn't work because nobody has time to do more than one blog well. So he dropped one blog, and he tried to keep the focus for a while, but realized that he, he couldn't maintain the focus that he established. And after a month, he finally figured out what he really wanted to write about. It turned out to be some kind of like positive well-being uh, philosophy. But you find out, when you're first starting out, this, is, this mostly applies to you know, professional personal blogs. Don't confine yourself to a narrow topic. Let it naturally emerge over one or two months. You'll find that you can only really write intelligibly and, and well about things that you know. So you'll probably naturally gravitate to things you know. And if you are a music connoisseur, you'll gravitate that way. I tried, about a month ago, I went through this identity crisis on my blog and thought, why am I writing about stuff that in the end I don't really care about? I want to write about cool things, you know? I want to break away from tech comm these confines. And then I realized that, wait a minute, to write about something else, I need to know something about it, which means I need to read and research it, which means that requires a lot of time, which means it may take me weeks before I can actually write a good post about it. So I gravitated back to technical communication. You have a question? Well, I have a comment. I hope you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. 
flaws, and that's yeah. And then you start talking about what's right about. Well, that the things mm. that interest you and the things that you know about, and then your natural voice become naturally. Yeah. So just to summarize for the audio here, so basically she's talking about find a book finding your voice that encourages you to write for yourself. And this ties into the long tail concept where you'll find an audience because we have a global number of readers. Somebody is going to like what you're interested in. Right? So don't worry about trying to write for a specific market. Write for yourself and you'll find lots of people like you throughout the world. And and this is true. This is what's cool about this is what's cool about um the internet, right? Is that let's say you have a podcast on a really specific niche that you think gosh nobody is interested in this but in fact there's somebody in Pakistan there's somebody in Russia there's somebody in you know Canada who all really are fascinated by the same topic um, you can you can build an audience that way and in fact the whole the whole granularity of focus to blogs is, is really a cool thing um, so also starting out besides focus another main question you may have is platform. What platform do I choose? This has been a this has been a, a really thorny issue in the workplace. WordPress is kind of like the geeky platform, but there are different types of WordPress. There's WordPress.com, which is not geeky at all. It's a freely hosted software. So it's like Blogger. In other words, you sign up for an account, all your content is on their servers, you never see the code, you just write. And that works well for a lot of people. If you're if you're intimidated by like HTML, you definitely probably want to go this route. Um, WordPress.org is a little more powerful in that you can install it on your own web host. So you have to go rent web host space from somewhere for seven bucks a month, and then you install WordPress on that site and you manage it. And you have free access to all the code, so you can do whatever you want, which usually means break your site. <laughs> but you can you can do ads on your site. Whereas you can't do ads on WordPress.com, they have some kind of purist philosophy about that. You can you can change ex entirely how it looks. You can brand it with your company. I think Author recently launched a blog. They had branded quite well to their products, and I believe it was a WordPress blog. Um, so you you have complete control, and that may be really critical. I mean, especially if you're a company, you want to brand your site so that it looks like your site. And this is actually what tons of people. Uh, when I was doing more WordPress consulting, wanted they wanted a blog that matched their site seamlessly, so you have a seamless experience. You cannot do that if you are doing a freely hosted blog such as Blogger or WordPress.com or LiveJournal or something. Um, movable type is another option that a lot of people like. But uh, so, but the problem with WordPress in the company atmosphere is that it requires two technologies that a lot of times companies don't support. PHP and MySQL. Those are more open source technologies. A lot of times companies like more robust solutions like uh, SQL, um, Oracle, they don't, they don't really want to have to deal with MySQL and PHP. So, so you may run into a conflict that will drive you nuts. So in my case, the guy who was running the servers, he really liked Joomla and he felt really comfortable with it and he managed to get a rogue server against the infrastructure so he could use these technologies because Joomla required PHP and MySQL, and, and so it was kind of a kind of a hassle. But remember that regardless of your platform, what people come is not to read what kind of site you used. They come to read your content, right? So even Blogger has really popular blogs. For example, Post Secret 
is a really popular one. Kind of a creepy site sometimes. People send in their secrets on postcards and he publishes them. So, <laughs> uh, but it's super popular and it uses Blogger. So there are lots of, there are probably a lot of other examples of, of successful Blogger sites. Blogger is an easy platform. My wife uh, has cursed me many times for forcing her to use WordPress when she really wanted to use Blogger, but I never forced her to use WordPress. It's just that I set it up long ago. She already had all her content in there. So migrating would have been a nightmare. But um, if you want an easy experience, you know, stick with a freely hosted thing. I really recommend WordPress.com. They do have, they have a, they have free HD, well not free, but almost free HD video capability. So if you upload something that you record in 1280 by 720 dimensions, it will render it into HD quality. Um, it's just like a minimal upgrade. Yeah. 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 So you're wondering, she's wondering if SharePoint's a viable option for blogging, and you have an internal audience, is that right? Yeah, this would be an internal yeah. blog. We have SharePoint at my work too, and, and in fact, I think it's really common. It's a great tool. It's a great platform. They do have a blog that you can do. I mean, do you ha I assume you have the latest, like SharePoint 2007. Yeah, yeah there's, you can install a SharePoint blog as a, as a type of a site, rather than like a team site or a wiki site. And SharePoint may be what you have to use. It, the problem with SharePoint, and I have beaten my head about this trying to figure it out, is that customizing things can be very tricky. If you search my site, um, if you site search my blog, I'd rather be writing.com for stuff on SharePoint. I do have some tips on how to how to customize it so that it doesn't look like every other SharePoint site, which is kind of the main challenge with SharePoint is that they are so hard to customize that they all pretty much look the same with maybe a different color variation. Um, but yeah, you kind of have to use the tools within your environment. As many times infrastructure, whatever department allows you to use the technology that your company has adopted just forces you into certain tools. But remember that it's about the content, not the, not the platform. But if you're choosing platforms and you have the option, choose WordPress. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I should say a little bit more about WordPress, about why I think it's the best. And I'm not any kind of like vendor or anything on WordPress. There's, there's three main reasons. One, it has a huge community of users. That means that there's lots of themes. So themes are the layout and the design. You just slap it on and it applies it. You have hundreds to choose from, thousands, because it's such a commonly used thing. And you have thousands of plugins. Plugins are little pieces of code that add functionality to your site. Um, let's say you wanted a members-only part of your site. Well, by default, nothing really comes with that. But somebody has created a members-only plugin that you just easily install. And you can start to install these plugins directly from within the interface now. So the, the themes, the plugins, the community all really make it cool. Plus they have this WordPress.tv site. You can learn all kinds of information. So when you, whenever you're choosing a tool, you want to find one with a lot of community and, and that has it. Now, another fact is time that you'll have to consider. And this is where most people uh, lose their energy. They, they start out, they get excited, then they realize that it actually takes a lot of time. So in order to justify your time, 
You have to have a strong sense of purpose with your blog. I know that I could not have maintained my blog without feeling inside driven by a deep purpose behind it. Um, many of you are, are writers by nature, and so you already feel like a special, uh, I don't want to say urgency, but you feel a special calling to blog or to write. You know, maybe you feel like you, you're going to produce the next American novel and it's something you need to do to justify your existence or something. But maybe you, you, you have to be driven by some purpose, otherwise you, your blog will die. And I've seen this happen to many people. They start to blog fade not two or three weeks after they start. And, and it really comes down to, to why are you doing it. And if you can't really answer that um, eventually, uh, then, then it will be a big challenge. And you'll find that you simply don't have time, which really means you want to use your time doing other things. So um, factor that in. And like I said, if you, if you can carve out a space in your day where you write, that works best, like if you take the bus. Actually, that's a lot of the reason why I take the bus. So, How are we doing on time? 4.10. Four ten. So we have 20 more minutes. Yes. So, you, so for time, how, how approximately how long would it take to set up a basic blog? To set up, a, well, if you just want us to set it up, we're talking 10 minutes. Oh, okay. But then the time is? The time is, is, is creating the content. That's what I'm referring to. Yeah. Um, and another interesting thing about time, though, is that the more you write, the easier it is to write a blog post. So Penelope Trunk says she spends like four hours on a blog post, but that's her business. I, I on average, spend maybe two hours on a blog post, or, or sometimes a little more, sometimes less. It depends how long you're writing. And you don't always have to write big, long blog posts. In fact, most people don't read long blog posts. You can write short little nuggets of information. One other trick that I do that really helps is that I will I will wait like 15 hours between edits. So I'll throw down an idea and I'll come back to it the next morning and I'll shape it. Each time you can allocate a space between writing gives you a completely fresh perspective that enables you to see exactly what needs to be done to shape the post. So if you can build that in, that's great. Um, my husband has a small business and we have a blog on his website. So kind of argue back and forth with how often he should post or I should post for him. Um, what do you think as far as, you know, not a personal site but a, a consumer-based site, how often should you post? And we're talking about a one person. What He's the only person employed in his business, so it's not mm. it's something that's huge. It's just a, a chiropractor. So. So, okay, so the question is how often should you post, especially if you're a one-person business and so you don't have a giant team, right? I think that um, you should post as often as as you can, and and well, the, th the problem is though, if you post it, if you devoted enormous amounts of time to blogging and you didn't see results, you didn't see an increase in business immediately, then very quickly you would say, I I don't have time to devote to that activity. It doesn't have the right return on investment. So um, I think a good amount of posts is like three per week, really. It's hard to do more than that. You can alternate long and short. You can do strategies. But if you hit three per week, that is a good stride. And I've tried to post every day, and I can't. And, and I don't have time, and I don't want to devote all my time. Of course, you have family. You have to sleep. You have, you have to exercise. Right? All these things can be compromised if you let it become a driving addiction. And really, 
people can't read at that pace. I can barely keep up with my wife's posts, right? And and so to think that you you have a starving audience is really kind of a misconception. A lot of times people come once a week and they're like, hey, what's new? So a few times a week. But but if you if you don't update for a month, people tend to think that you've given up. <laughs> so there is this, this value to having fresh content and posts. And as I said, the more you write, the easier it is to write. The more the, more the ideas flow. So in this, these last 10 or so minutes, I want to give you 10 real practical tips for starting a blog, regardless of what kind of situation you're in. Regardless of... Uh, I wasn't quite sure how much time I had, so I had a few extra slides. But uh, <clears throat> actually, let me back up a minute before I get into this, because I did want to talk a little bit about product blogging. So <clears throat> uh, the blogs I've, mo I've mostly been talking about are blogs that are attached to your company or to your to yourself, your identity. But you can also have a very specific focused blog on a on a product and I tried this for a while um, and I found that I was diverging down two different paths every time support somebody called support and had an issue I would I would make a new blog post about it and say hey look if you have this issue this is the workaround or if, if I discovered some new tip or trick in the application that I hadn't put in the help I blogged about it and put it right beside the help and my idea was that okay, these visitors of my product, they're going to go to the help, they're going to see the blog, and they're going to be engaged by it because it's not this static, boring help content. But what I found is that the more I put stuff in the blog, the more I realized that it really should be in the help because I wanted people's searches to search all the content, including the stuff from the blog. So I had this kind of fragmented documentation, and I found a lot of people only went to this site that contained the blog when they needed help. So their searches in the help weren't being entirely fruitful. So that it, it, it's just a kind of a, a warning is if you have a very specific product focused blog, it may not be as valuable as just a general company blog that has lots of going ons that aren't necessarily necessarily troubleshooting tips that are very specific, like instructional topics that you would put in your help. In other words, what goes on a blog isn't necessarily what goes in your help content. The two are separate material. And uh, it took me a while to figure that out. Okay, so here are my 10 tips to blogging. One, pick a general topic for your blog. And like I said, this may take a month or two to figure out. But once you figure it out, write it on your blog. Because most people, they're landing on your blog for the first time. And they, they want to know what you're all about. This is site Bacardo. And uh, actually... Linking to this site was the best thing I ever did because he he was so flattered. I had a post about these usability tips. He was so flattered that I'd highlighted him that he linked to me and he had tons of subscribers and it just grew up, grew quite well after that. But um, in your tagline or whatever, let people know what's your focus. Second, allow readers to contact you. I was actually just talking with somebody who said that it, they tried as much as possible to make it difficult for people to contact them. It seemed like, anyway. Um, this is What this says on the board is, uh, hello, I hate to abuse comments this way, but I can't find another way to contact you on the blog. I'm William Nib, an acquisitions editor at Wiley. I found your videos very well done. 
wonder if you might be interested in discussing authoring a book. And people all the time, they perceive you as an expert in something. They want to contact you. It's not post-related. Do you have a contact button on your site? You should. And, and hopefully it's not just a form. Hopefully it's an email because sometimes the forms are, are they're kind of screwy and they, they don't always work well. And people don't have a high confidence that they're actually received by, by somebody. But make it, make it so they can contact you. Encourage comments. Allow people to comment easily. Don't force them to log in to comment. That's, that's their worst strategy, right? Is forcing them to sign up for something before they can leave a little comment. And, and don't sanitize them. Don't delete them. Just uh, allow people to have this open dialogue. Yes? Do you put little, uh, do you put encouragements in the post? I know you do, but generally is it a wise idea to put encouragements in the post? What do you think about uh, this? So the question is, should you say something in your post? Like, what do you think about this? Or feel free to share. I have found that it has no effect whatsoever on whether people comment. <laughs> People comment if they have something to say. Usually people comment when they have something to add or they want to correct you or they, they have something that goes beyond. If you're really thorough in your posts, you probably won't get a whole lot of comments. Make it easy to subscribe to your blog. So put the three buttons up there, the, the feed button, the email button, the Twitter. This one doesn't have Twitter, but it's got iTunes. So give people the, at least all the options right up front. Make it appear above the fold so that when they, when they have this little epiphany inside that says, this is a cool blog, I want to subscribe, it's right there. Include an about page. And I, I was on a blog a while ago, cleverhamster.com, and, and it was really well written. And, and I was like, wow, this person, this person is smart. I want, to, I want to follow this person, but who are they? Didn't have an about page. So I, I left a comment or, or something, and I said, who are you? I said, can you include an about page? And she did. It was Mary, Mary Connor's blog. And uh, including an about page, this isn't an example of this. This is laurel.wordpress.com. who really encourages about pages because blogs are personal. You want to be authentic. And people want to know if you, if you, who you are. They want to know if you're credible, I guess, or they're just curious to know what kind of background you have that, that uh, lends to the, the experiences you're writing about. So definitely include that. You don't have to say things like, yeah, I live at 123 May Street, of course. <laughs> or if you have children, you don't want to like list their names and so forth, but general idea. Use subheadings. This is just good common sense, but people skim blogs. They scan. They're not, they, they need these subheadings because they're rifling through it. They're skimming it, and they need to bounce, bounce, it, <coughs> bounce through them. This is an example from Copyblogger. So, so definitely use subheadings if you have long posts, right? If there's just short one-paragraph posts, it's not really a big deal. <clears throat> Link abundantly. This is what, probably one of the best tips. Um, when I wrote this, this post on blog usability a while ago, I put all my research at the bottom. They were mostly links from bloggers and what they had learned in a, over their blogging life or whatever. And... Immediately as I posted it, they were all notified through this blog awareness technology. I'm not even sure what it's called. Um, that kind of taps them on the shoulder and says, hey, somebody linked to your site. So um, when you link to somebody, they're usually notified by email. It's called a pingback or a trackback. And 
in this example here, on the left, there's two sites here. On the left is where I put a link. On the right is the comments of the site that I linked to. And you'll see that my post, an excerpt of my post, appears in the comments of the other person's site. So this is why linking is so important. Not only do people get little email notifications, hey, somebody linked to you. Uh, a lot of the time, an excerpt of your post appears on the page you link to. So it increases your visibility. But I like to think of linking as kind of tapping somebody on the shoulder and saying, hey, I wrote about you. Um, coming back to Penelope Trunk, who's uh, been using a lot lately cause, just because I've been reading her, I, I wrote a post about some cool advice she had, and I linked to her. And um, my wife had linked to her as well. And one day, my wife actually got a comment from her, and it, it floored my wife. She was so excited. And I, I thought it was cool, too, because she's a really well-known writer. And uh, without the linking, she would have never known. People don't know that you write about them. But they're intensely curious to know, you know what, what are people writing about me? Uh, comments, they're almost not paid to as much attention as, as actual posts and link backs or track backs. Offer related articles after your posts. So this is a really valuable thing. I talked about this earlier. You want you have 700 posts. Put your related related links under your latest posts. That encourages uh, secondary clicks and people drilling into your site. It's really easy to to install a, a related links plugin. You don't have to manually do that. Showcase your top 10. And, and this is from Guy Kawasaki's site. The 10, 20, 30 rule of PowerPoint, which I have tried to follow. Uh, basically, he's not into PowerPoint. So, <laughs> but, but you know, yeah, you want people to, to see your best stuff. And if it's buried, if they can't find it, you do yourself a disservice and the reader's a disservice because your stuff is, the great content you wrote is just, it's almost like it's buried underground. <clears throat> and finally, share personal stories with voice. Not always easy, easy to do, but it will give the most return. Uh, people love to read stories. They love to read personal experiences. Um, it's what really engages people. And use, use voice. This is an example from Sarah Maddox's blog, a post that I thought was particularly engaging about agile technical writing. So those are my 10 tips. And with that, I'm done. Does anybody have any questions? Yes. Can you use PayPal? Of course, yeah. I use PayPal all the time. It's, um, you, it's, if you go to PayPal's site, you get code to insert a button, and it works great. So what Charging people for doing WordPress consulting. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're selling something, let's say you have a T-shirt you're selling or a baby sling or something, or... If you're a robust company, you probably have your own payment system. Well, yeah, PayPal's a, a payment site. Thanks for coming. <laughs>